and that that's the way he did it with us too. He'd always begin by saying, "Look, this is well written," but you know, so as as soon as he told us it was well written, we were like, "Ah, no, something's wrong with it." Welcome back to the Love Journalism Show. I'm your host, Darren Samuelson. Here's the next part of my interview with Cody Keenan, the former White House speechwriter to President Barack Obama, recorded on March 7th, 2023. There's a great line where you say, Obama, this is advice I think Obama is giving you about inspiration. Uh, when you don't have the words, read James Baldwin. And when you do have the words, listen to John Coltrane. Uh, yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that. Have you used that advice? Is that actually, does that work? Yeah, uh, sort of. Uh, it, he, it was, um, it was right before, I think it was about a week before he had to give a speech on the 50th anniversary of the eye of a dream speech. And he had to do it from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. I mean, talk about being set up to fail. You know, it's like, can you go stand where Dr. King stood and pay tribute to that speech 50 years later? Sure. Cool. Um, <clears throat> and so not, as you can tell, none of us are looking forward to it. Him, he wasn't either. Um, but he said, uh, he didn't have any input for us, which is what we really needed. And he said, listen to, uh, he said, uh, read James Baldwin when you're stuck, listen to John Coltrane when you're not. And it made a little sense, you know, Baldwin, I'd, I'd read James Baldwin in college, but I hadn't returned to it until Obama really pushed on it. And there's just kind of this, you know, searing moral clarity in what he writes that, that almost liberates you as a speechwriter. A lot of times we'd sit down, I touched on this with, with my first draft of the Selma speech, but you would get, um, you'd get kind of nervous, you know, can I really tell the truth here? Can I really say what I want to say? Or do I have to kind of sand it down? And it's just, it's usually the inertia of politics that makes you think that way. And then you read something like James Baldwin, and you're like, oh no, there is such a thing as right and wrong. And so I can say whatever I want. Um, and then Coltrane, that was the, that was the harder piece to absorb because it's just kind of free form jazz and it, it would work, uh, if I already knew what to write, you know, then it would sort of, you know, your, your, it would feel like your fingers are moving a little bit faster. But uh, it's not like I sat down and listened to Coltrane every time I wrote a speech from then on. <laughs> I can't even begin to contemplate what it's like to have as many cooks in the kitchen while writing as you as you must have had. Um, and you had, obviously, lawyers, national security advisors, policy experts from every single agency. You've got reporters like me who want to know what you're writing before you've even written it. And then you, you, you also happen to have as an editor, the most powerful person on the planet who can drop a nuclear bomb on your house, I guess, uh, if he doesn't like what you say. Uh, what is that like? I mean, how on earth do you make that noise go away while you're trying to put words on paper? You're triggering me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't miss, I don't miss those emails from you guys that were like, what's he going to say tomorrow? Um, I actually remember one before the Charleston eulogy saying is, would you call this his most important speech? And I said, just please, please go away until the speech is over. Um, Cause I don't need that kind of pressure right now. Um, yeah, it's, it, it, it is hard. And it, 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 what helped us kind of filter out the noise was Obama. He, we had a unique relationship with him um, that began with him and John Favreau, obviously. But, but when we moved to the white house and, and Favs was chief speechwriter, you know, Obama elevated it to assistant to the president rank, which is the highest rank in the white house gave him open door privileges, full access. We travel with him. We see the boss. Um, and he was the final arbiter. So if anybody would try to sneak something into a speech through us, we, we had his proxy to say, no, this, he doesn't want to talk about that. That's for something else. Um, and, uh, he, you know, he was always our chief speechwriter, but, but, but he gave us that power to push back if we had to, uh, which is just a huge help because if you, 
if you don't have that authority, um, it can become a real mess. Who is the hardest person to push back on? Him. The hardest person to push back on was Obama. Um, you know, Valerie was difficult just because of her, her, her closeness to the president, but I didn't have trouble pushing back on cabinet secretaries or the chief of staff or anybody else. Um, Rom was difficult to push back against in the first couple of years, but, uh, but it was always the boss. And it, it, that took me a few years to feel comfortable enough actually really pushing back on him. Um, but he appreciated it. It's, it's actually what he wanted, you know, let, tell me why I'm wrong was sort of the way we approached that when we went to talk to him. If you're giving feedback to the president, do you usually start with the positive and then put the, the negative in the middle and, and kind of create a shit sandwich? Or do you just kind of jump right in and, and, uh, and give it to him like it is? Uh, the positive first, for sure. And that, that's the way he did it with us, too. He'd always begin by saying, look, this is well written, but, you know, it's always, as soon as he told us it was well written, we were like, ah, no, something's wrong with it. So you obviously have uh, an amazing workspace in the sense that you're working at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, uh, but you write in your book that you have some kind of drab surroundings uh, there, but you're also sometimes writing in motorcades or military helicopters or sitting on Air Force One. Uh, give us a sense of what it's like in terms of, uh, you know, the world around you while you're writing and, and, you know, how important is that for you to have surroundings that are inspiring? Yeah, if I could, I'd write in a big space every day, big soaring space, because there's, there's just something about it that sort of lends itself to bigger thinking. You know, in, in, when I went to college at Northwestern University, we had... Uh, the Deering Library was basically this giant old Gothic cathedral with soaring ceilings, and I loved to work in there. Um, a windowless basement in the West Wing is not one of those spaces. You know, a, a staff van or the Beast or a helicopter, not one of those spaces. You're just trying to basically survive and get it done. Um, you know, but it lends itself to some pretty cool spots. You know, I remember finishing up a speech while I was on an Osprey uh and you look out the window, we were at Cape Canaveral, right? And you were flying around the space shuttle and you're like, all right, that's pretty awesome. Um, but it was pretty rare. There was there was one, I think it was a G8 or something. We were in um, Belfast, and but we were all staying out at some golf course in, in Ireland, some golf resort. And so I just went outside one day when I didn't, I didn't have to go to the G8. I had to write a climate speech. So I just went and sat outside and you've got this, you know, enormous Irish countryside panorama. And I was like, God, this is great. You know, you just don't get it often. So you get to savor those moments where you get to write somewhere like that. A little bit about the, I wonder if you could talk about the audience uh, that you're trying to speak to. Uh, You mentioned, obviously you have, you know, moments when you have a natural disaster or something happening that you've got to top a speech with. Um, but you also, you, you talk about in your book, you're reading everyday Americans' letters. Um, I mean, talk about the audience that you're trying to reach when you're writing a speech for the president of the United States. I mean, how do you even contemplate who's listening and and what you're trying to connect with? Yeah, there are a couple of different answers to that. I mean, one is that the audience is the entire world. Um, you know, just like there, there's no such thing as a um, private set of remarks. You know, that's something Mitt Romney learned in 2012. But But in general, you always have to assume that, you know, everybody's got a recording device in their pocket. So you are, you are always on a hot mic and often on live video, even if you don't know it. So that's in your head, but you try to think about the audience for any given speech, right? For, for Selma, for example, you know, you know, there's going to be an African American, American audience, civil rights component. There's gonna be voting rights advocates. 
You've got members of Congress sitting right in front of you, uh, some of whom are openly hostile to the Voting Rights Act. Why not needle them on that? Um, so there are a bunch of different audiences, but but you always try to think about first and foremost, what's the story we're trying to tell here? And then you can you can sort of custom tailor that to different audiences. But but we would always think about the audiences first, right? But but it's you don't cater the story to them. Um, like just, just specifically that audience, you think about the story you want to tell first, and then you can make it make sense to that audience, uh, in a certain way. Reading through your book and you're talking about a couple of gigantic Supreme court decisions coming up in the days leading up to, uh, Charleston and the speech that the president gives there. You have the affordable care act, second, uh, ruling from the Supreme court and the gay marriage ruling. And you had to write all of these different scenario speeches, uh, winning, losing, winning, sort of, losing, sort of, um, which as a writer, as a journalist, we often have to pre-write stories ourselves and, and you put some effort into one over the other, but you got to have to write all of them. I'm, I'm just curious, as a speechwriter, how tough is that when you have different scenarios and the, the speech is going to be d- different depending on what happens and you just don't know? Really tough. Um, you know, it, emotionally, writing the speeches for if marriage equality failed and if the Affordable Care Act was knocked down, that was really difficult. You know, how do you, how does the president go out and talk to, you know, millions of people who've just been told you're effectively second class citizens in this country? Um, that's pretty dark. Uh, fortunately, he didn't have to deliver those, but but writing them was tough. Um, it's always a it's always a challenge to write something like that. You know, it's for people ask people often ask, you know, do you do you guys have eulogies in the can for when famous people die? And now nah, we never did that. I, I know n- newspapers have to because, you know, I'm sure the, the the New York Times obituary of Queen Elizabeth was was 10,000 words long, but we never broke that glass. Um, but but in this case, you know, when a Supreme Court ruling comes down, the country needs to hear from the president and they don't have six to eight hours to wait for you to put to put a speech together. So that's why we'd have, we try to have him done. Uh, and he wouldn't look at him. You know, he, I remember, um, that's glass that he wouldn't break. And I, I remember when I went up that morning, the morning of the ACA decision to get his edits, uh, his assistant handed me back the, the version for if the entire law was struck down and he had just written on the top. Don't need this. Didn't need this one, brother. And then he signed it for posterity, which I thought was funny. Um, I did not get to keep that. That goes to the national archives. Um, but it also, you know, just the, the events of those days and which way the Supreme Court would rule was going to have an impact on the Charleston eulogy that was coming up at the end of the week. You know, we knew that was going to be on Friday. Um, how does he go out and give that eulogy if, you know, we also didn't know which day of the week the Supreme Court cases would be ruled on. So what if the Supreme Court on Friday morning knocked down the Affordable Care Act and uh, did not find a constitutional right to marriage equality. And then Obama has to go eulogize um, nine black people who were murdered by a white supremacist. That's a pretty tough day. And it lends itself to probably a, a, a slightly sadder speech. I mean, it wouldn't have changed the content a ton. Um, but man, one thing it would have changed, though, is, you know, I, I had all these reporters asking the day before, is this the most important speech of the presidency? One reporter even asked this no, a cable producer actually asked, can the president solve race? Um, the answer to that is no. But, but just imagine the stories and the tweets in those few hours between Obama speaking on losing both cases and flying to Charleston. It would basically be, is the presidency over? Weakened Obama takes the stage in Charleston. Instead, it's it becomes the exact opposite. You know, Thursday, 
day nine of, of my book, you've got the ACA is upheld. Friday, you get marriage equality. And, uh, you know, at, at least if you're of the more liberal persuasion, or I think even, you know, most people in the middle, you're, you're pretty relieved that both cases went that way, that America decided to stand up for, for working people who couldn't afford health insurance, decided to tell gay people, your love is just as good as everybody else's. Um, and it kind of filled Obama with, you know, you could see him sort of standing a little bit taller. Uh, and if you watch his remarks on marriage equality on Friday morning, he he was spoke he spoke even more slowly than usual, which is no mean feat because he's a slow speaker. Um, but you could tell he was sort of he even ad libbed a bunch. He added in stuff about Bobby Kennedy and the ripples of hope at the end and, and what it means to be an American. And, you know, all the stuff that had played out in the Selma speech just three months before was kind of coming true in real time, you know, um, whether or not we're going to stand up for against, you know, bigotry and white supremacy, whether we're going to stand up for working Americans, for gay Americans. Um, and it's all just happening in real time. And we, so we got to weave this kind of narrative thread through the Obamacare speech, the marriage equality speech and Charleston about America constantly perfecting itself. And, and the work of each generation is trying to make those words of our founding um, real and true in our time. And, so fortunately, reality and the events of the weeks contributed to better speech making. I'm, I'm now fascinated as well to, to contemplate what the National Archives is holding in terms of the alternate reality speeches of, of American history. I mean, from uh, perhaps the, the moonshot not quite working and John F. Kennedy giving a, a different set of remarks to all of the uh, all of the speeches that you wrote that didn't get printed are, are sitting there, uh, perhaps making a really good novel. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was Nixon who uh, they they had to prepare a speech in case the uh, uh, the Apollo mission failed. Mm. Uh, talk to me about what President Obama means when he encourages you encourages you uh, to think about finding the silences, which is something you talk about in uh, I believe it's the uh, it's one of the State of the Union speeches actually where where he tells you about this, right? Yeah, it was the 2015 State of the Union address, and it was. Um, that would have been his seventh and my third uh, as as chief speechwriter. And, you know, the city address is a beast. It's a laundry list. You have to jam everything in there. You've got the whole cabinet coming at you with their ideas. And you're just trying to make it as close to a, a narrative story as you possibly can, which is very difficult with 40 completely separate policy items. But I think I'd done it. I'd done the best uh, that I had done yet up to that point. And I handed it to him eight days before. And I was like, this is in really good shape. Um, and he called me back up the next day and, and said, sit down. He was, he was having lunch in the private dining room. And he said, so here's the deal. Um, I do think we're in the best shape we've ever been in eight days out, but you know, good news first. Um, he said, here's the thing. Everything's in here. You know, every sentence says something, every word means something. There is no wasted space. The entire speech is at a 10. And, you know, I was so tired that, that I was like, yeah, Ben, that's that's what these are. You know, everything's in here. It's a laundry list. He goes, no, no, no. Let me put it a different way. I need, you know, rather than everything at a 10, I need some of this at a four, a six, a two. You know, I need I need emotion and and, uh, you know, not literal pauses, but but emotional pauses. I need laughter. I need um, to move people. You know what I'm saying? And I did. It's just it's it's the it's the inertia of a state of the union address that just makes you forget good speech writing sometimes. And he said, you know what they say about miles Davis, right? And I said, no, he said, it's the notes you don't play. It's the spaces between, you know, that's what made him so good. Um, 
So go home tonight and I don't want you to do any work because like I said, we're in good shape, but pour yourself a drink, listen to some Miles Davis and come back here tomorrow and find me some silences. And I did, I, I knew what he was saying, you know, it's, it's, he needs, he needs space to literally and figuratively breathe in the text and for the audience to literally and figuratively breathe too. And I think one of the, I think one of the lines I added after that was, um, this was a state of the union address where rather than point out a whole bunch of different people who were sitting up next to the first lady, we only focused on one, a woman named Rebecca Erler who'd written a letter to the president. And we gave her a lot of real estate in the speech because her story was a one that I think most Americans could empathize with or understand uh, coming out of the financial crisis. And B, a lot of the policies that we were fighting for that year would have directly helped her and people like her. And, and she was just really cool. And my wife and I have actually stayed friends with her ever since because we're all the same age. But um, And her husband is super cool too. But So I'd added in a line basically or a paragraph basically summarizing their story. You know, the, uh, Rebecca waited tables, her husband, Ben worked construction. You know, they had a son named Jack and a second one on the way. They were young and in love in America and it doesn't get much better than that. So I just added kind of this, this almost Mellencampian summary of their story, um, with a nice line that, you know, even if you hate Barack Obama, uh, and just happen to be watching the state of the union address, which is probably pretty rare that you would fit into both categories. If you heard him say, you know, they were young and in love in America and it doesn't get much better than that, you might grab your spouse's hand, remembering, you know, when you were young and carefree and everything was great. Um, that's just nice. And so, of course, that was also the first line that all the policy people attacked in the next draft. They were like, hey, it, you know, I need you to stick in this policy. And if you need to, if you need to save 10 words somewhere else, you can cut out that line about being young and in love. And I was like, get away from me. That's the best part of the speech. <laughs> To, to something else you write about in your book, um, but I mean, kind of getting to emotion, you write about sometimes being numb to so many things you experience after working in the White House, from the shootings, uh, and there were so many in your in your time in the White House, to high-pressure battles over policy and laws affecting all Americans. Um, and there's points throughout your book, you're talking about sort of the powerlessness of being president. I think that's maybe mostly in the, in the, in the mass shootings. Can you talk about that feeling of trying to write a speech when you're literally working for the most powerful person in the world who really is struggling with whether he can change anything, uh, which is also fascinating given, you know, the campaign slogan of 2008. Um, but talk about that feeling of trying to write words for a president when you're struggling with the power that he actually has. You know, what's interesting is one of the actual uh, things you have to do in the White House is fight against cynicism. Um, and that's that's a big kind of... Uh, undercurrent in, in my book, um, that you have to fight against that impulse that you can't do anything because you can, even if it's, even if it's not satisfying, even if it's not 100% of what you want. Um, if you're in there, you know, pushing that boulder uphill for all 2,922 days, you get some victories, you know, or to, to use a different metaphor, you know, if you, if you just, if you gain a yard every single day, eventually you're going to score a touchdown. Um, you know, you got to leave fourth down out of it, but um, it's all of those days and all of those inches ultimately add up to seven points. You know, that's, that's for, for, you know, the wins on the Affordable Care Act and marriage equality, um, those don't belong to Barack Obama alone. You know, there was a, a 100 year movement for universal health care and we're still not there, right? But we closed the gap halfway, um, in one fell swoop. There's a 50 plus year movement for LGBTQ equality. Um, and we're, we're obviously not all the way there, but 
but you, you know, you get that decision and then you Congress codified marriage equality into law last year, you know, just little by little. Um, that's how progress is won in this country. And you have to remind yourself of that. And a lot of times we would use President Obama's speeches to remind Americans of that. Um, we tend to want everything we want right when we want it. And democracy just doesn't work that way. And it's really frustrating, um, especially to work in it. But but the alternative is much worse. So a lot of times we just we have to remind people and convince people that um, our efforts matter, our joint efforts matter. And even if, you know, a president can't get everything done on guns that people want. Biden just signed the first serious law in 30 years. And, but you also have these amazing organizations like moms demand in every town that have been making real progress on the local and state levels. And so I'm getting into the weeds here, but, but again, a lot of the, a lot of the job of a speechwriter in the white house is to fight against cynicism, both, you know, internally in our own minds and, and by using speeches to get everybody else to fight against it too. You, you come across in your book as being very hard on yourself at various points in time. Um, and uh, it's a theme I've hit on with a couple of my previous guests as well. Um, it's one I can relate to uh, quite a bit, too. And I'm curious, what do you how do you measure success for yourself as a speech writer, uh, you know, when you are striving for excellence? Well, making the boss happy was was one good way to measure it. Um you know, the, probably the less, the less work he had to do on a speech was a, a suggestion that you've done a pretty good job. Um, but I always liked seeing heads nodding in the audience, you know, and it's usually an audience that comes to see the president, they're fans of the president. So, um, you know, it's, it's hard not to get a positive response out of people who come to see your boss, but, but if you can see heads, actual heads nodding, you know, you're, you're connecting in a way. And that's really the most important thing about a speech is to, you know, a president should talk like a human being. Um, with normal human terminology, you know, you don't have to muddle it all up with hackneyed phrases and, and um, big lofty arguments. If you can just connect with people in a way that they can share with others what they heard that day, uh, then you've succeeded. What's the personal toll like of working in a White House? And, and how long did it take you after the second term concluded before you started to feel like a normal human being again? Um, years. It really did. It's, you know, it's, it's not like we're out there digging ditches or, or living in a coal mine. It's, it's not, it's, but it can be emotionally grueling, um, and, and tiring, exhausting. I mean, they're, you know, not just all nighters, but having to do the same thing over and over and over again and keep pushing that boulder uphill. And, uh, you know, we, we did 3,577 speeches and statements over eight years. It's, it's a lot. One of the guys who carry the nuclear football uh, talked to us about this once. We were traveling on Air Force One. This is the last year we're about to clock out. And he said, listen, I, it's obviously not the same, but I did two tours in Iraq. And I'll tell you, you guys don't know how much adrenaline has been coursing through your body now for not just eight years, but add on the two years of the campaign. So for almost 10 years, it takes about half that long for it to, to drain out of your system. You know, if every time I did a two-year tour, it would take me about a year to start to feel normal again. Um, and again, I would never liken working in the West wing to, to serving in Iraq, but, but there's some truth to that. And it, it did take a long time to kind of come to terms with, um, you know, what we'd done, what we'd given up in our own lives, returning to lives, re rekindling friendships, catching up with family. Cause you just cancel a lot and you miss a lot. Um, what was great about our white house is, you know, we, we really truly loved each other. Uh, a lot of us, you know, uh, worked together on the first campaign and then spent all eight years in the White House. I think it was a pretty uncommon number of people who went tape to tape. And 
you know, a lot of us actually married each other. I met my wife at the White House. Um, there are a whole bunch of, of, of Obama couples. And I've, I've joked to the president several times, you know, you have dozens of grandbabies running around this country. And he's still mad that nobody has named their their, ch their child Barack. Barack. <laughs>